Amen. All right. Thanks, Julie. Um, our passage this morning is Luke 11, beginning in verse 14, extending to verse 28. I hope uh, God or coffee gave you really fast ears this morning. First service is going to have to listen quick. We got a lot to, to handle. As we get rolling in our passage this morning, I want to actually direct your attention to another passage. I think it's going to be on the screen beside me. And if you've been in and around the church, this is a pretty familiar uh, paragraph. It's actually sandwiched in a couple of paragraphs from Ephesians 2. Can we go ahead and throw that, uh, that verse up here? Yep, so Ephesians 2 if you remember the passage, Paul's writing to the church and he's describing verses 1 through 3, their spiritual state before coming to saving knowledge of Jesus. And then verses not, uh, 4 through 9 really shift to what God has done to make us alive together with Christ. So we'll read the passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived according among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath or of wrath as the others were also or as the rest of mankind. It's a familiar paragraph, but it's really bracketed with familiarity, meaning the verse one idea describing our deadness and sins and trespasses is perhaps pretty familiar to you and pretty common. And then on the far end of this passage, this idea here that we see in verse 3, the reality that we carry out our fleshly desires, that we follow our broken thoughts, and that we're somehow under God's wrath. Again, it's probably a familiar notion that you've heard communicated in the church, but it's here in the middle that things get a little bit sideways. We're describing this brokenness, distortion of sin, and in verse 2, he says that we walked according to the ways of the world, then this phrase, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the disobedient. Now, depending on your upbringing or denominational background or personality, these two phrases are tricky. Just really don't know how to handle them. And for many, it becomes common. Just kind of skip past that. Uh, most of us are either going to go one of two ways with this discussion. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of the disobedient. We're either going to bend towards hyper-focus on Satan, demons, spiritual reality that we can't see. Thankfully, culture throws us softball sometimes. Uh, this week in the Christian Twittersphere, which I hope you don't live there, but uh, sometimes I do, uh, there was a, I'm going to use quote finger pastor, quote finger pastor, who uh, got up in his sermon and said that a demon had told him that there were six witches in the church that morning. And uh, he went on to, uh, I mean, like six minutes of his sermon. This is not what I'm going to do this morning, by the way. Okay, this is just illustration. Six minutes of his sermon kind of threatening the witches that he was going to call them out by name. And then he said, and I quote, and I'm going to kick you and your brooms right out of here. It was awesome. All right. Uh, so that's one temptation in the church, like hyper focus on this world. And then the, the other bent, and I would assume the bent of more of us in the church this morning, is to go a bit, we don't talk about Bruno with demons, right? <laughs> Dude's just locked away somewhere, out of sight, out of mind. This is something that is intimidating for us. It's scary. 
not really sure how to think about it. Well, and if you didn't get the we don't talk about Bruno joke, you're just old, okay? Uh, some of you are staring at me, you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about, you're just old. Those that, that bend this way, you know, it's probably attributable. We live in a pretty pragmatic culture, super scientific in our orientation, things that we can't see, touch, feel, quantify, become really difficult for us. So it's easier for us just to think out of sight, out of mind. And we do this, unfortunately, with both the work of the Holy Spirit and angels and with the work negatively of Satan and the demonic realm. We get a bit of correction in both ways as we read the Bible. The scriptures are not hyper-focused on Satan and demons, but they're certainly not out of sight, out of mind. In fact, in some passages, these realities come front and center. Case in point is our text this morning. Let's read it together. I'm in Luke 11, beginning in verse 14, and I'll read to verse 28. I'm reading out of the CSB translation, so you can follow along. Now he, this is Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowds were amazed. Some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Verse 17, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebub. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when a stronger one, then, attack, then he attacks and overpowers him. He takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding it, it, says, it then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one that nursed you. And he said, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, I will admit that when I first read this passage this week, I had a bit of a streak of envy, longing for the world of Good Samaritans and Mary and Martha's and Lord's prayers. This is a challenging passage. The last three weeks, the passages have been concrete. They've been clear. And just with a pretty casual reading, the application is somewhat obvious. It doesn't mean they're easy to obey, but the application is kind of baked into the text. This passage is confusing, it's cumbersome, and to steal words that Donnie and I use in the Seven Errors book, it's just a blurry passage for us, thinking about a mirror. It's just, you can't really see clearly, what in the world do I do with this text? So the first thing I did when I don't understand something on my first read is I want to go back and get a little bit of context. So I, I want you to think with me about where we've been in this little mini-series from Luke. We picked up in Luke 9 verse 51. Maybe you've done this, um, you've started to read a book, 
and you've gotten midway through and something happened and you put it aside for a couple of months and then you pick it back up again and you go to the dog-eared page and you start reading you're like, I don't remember what's going on. So you have to rewind the tape for a couple of chapters to get yourself a running start to get back familiar. So if we rewind the tape, helpful for my brain to think just in big buckets. We're seeing three big movements in Luke's gospel. Luke 9, beginning in 51, the first bucket was considering the cost of following Jesus. We did about three sermons on this. Jesus warns the crosses to come, and he warns the disciples that there's going to be cost for them in following him as well. And then the second big bucket, the last three sermons, the Good Samaritan, Mary, Martha, and the Lord's Prayer, we've been looking at what, what should disciples, followers of Jesus, be doing while they're following him? Like, what are the good works that God has put before his people to walk in? Well, we're starting another bucket of idea. And if you look in Luke 11, just let your eyes scan your headers there. Another good practice. If you just let your eyes scan the headers, you notice that what's getting ready to come is Jesus is going to renounce religious hypocrisy. He's going to poke at the Pharisees. So we're in a, a three, four sermon section that's going to talk about opposition. And we're going to see opposition, both very visible and concrete people and invisible, a spiritual realm that is hard for us to quantify. And that's what our sermon is this morning. This morning's text involves two types of opposition. We have the opposition of the demons And then the text really quickly shifts to the opposition. Luke just labels it some of them, religious leaders, people that are attempting to test and trap Jesus. And we see that Jesus uses this second concrete form of opposition to talk about the first, demons, the invisible hidden realm of the Spirit. And it becomes clear in these sermons, this sermon block, that things are getting ready to unravel for Jesus. There's going to be opposition that's ultimately going to lead to the cross. We begin to see that quite clearly. So how do we think about this really confusing portion of Scripture? I want to give you two big ideas this morning and then three so what's. So if you're taking notes, two big ideas and then three so what's. The two big ideas, the best way I know how to think about this is to go back to grade school English class, which means I lost like 90% of you in doing that. You remember uh, prepositions? I don't really remember prepositions, honestly. Uh, but it was like uh, anything that a squirrel can do to a can, right, was a prep. That's, that's really bad because a squirrel can kick a can. I don't think kick's a preposition. But like any relationship that a squirrel has to a can, squirrel can be over a can, in a can, under a can, around a can. Okay, so we're going to think two squirrel-to-can descriptions of Jesus and this realm of Satan and the demons. First, Jesus is over the demons. Text demonstrates very clearly Jesus is over the demons. Two truths, three points of application. First truth, Jesus is over the demons. This is the most obvious point of the passage. And, interestingly, it's certainly not the main focus of the text. It's almost an aside. It's the first verse there, specifically. The text, Luke, merely describes a man who's mute, and his muteness is equated to or because of demons. This would have been a huge deal in an oral culture. I mean, even more so than in our culture today. To not be able to speak would have been virtually equivalent to being helpless. You couldn't do anything in that society. 
Jesus then, interesting juxtaposition here, Jesus speaks, the demon leaves, the man speaks, and the crowd is amazed. Very simple, straightforward, concrete. Jesus demonstrates his power over the demons. This isn't the first time that we've seen this in Luke, though Luke does it less frequently than the other gospel writers. Look back in Luke 9, verses 37 to 43. This should just be a page flip or a quick thumb scroll back for you. Luke 9, this is right before we picked up this mini-series. We have this uh, other interaction. Jesus is uh, interacting with a boy uh, who is experiencing convulsions, Uh, And it is attributable here to an unclean spirit. Again, we get different descriptions of this realm. I'm reading in Luke 9, verse 42. The boy was still approaching. The demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. If you're taking notes, that is the big idea, this last description. All that's happening in this kind of straightforward, Jesus does something, demonstrates his power over a demon, kicks them out, gives the person back in their right mind or able to speak. The point is, verse 43, the people that are watching this are really astonished at the greatness of God. This is a demonstration of God's power. And interestingly, and here's, here's the really important connection, it's not just greatness of God kind of vague, Uh, theoretical, but it's greatness of God in and through the power of Jesus Christ. So we have a connection. Jesus is God, and he's demonstrating himself to be God by doing things that only God can do. So the people are amazed. Power of God, and the power of God is in that person, in Jesus. So all this miraculous stuff that's happening is, and I've said this in previous sermons, it's a spotlight operator moving the spotlight to follow Jesus. It's helping us, hey, you should listen to him. You should focus on him. Interestingly, this is the same way this whole realm happens in the book of Acts as the apostles are spreading out into the Gentile world. Acts of healing, miraculous, speaking, it validates the message about Jesus. The spotlight operator helping us see Christ. So Jesus demonstrates, I'm powerful over the demons and this means that I am God. Then secondly, Jesus is against the demons. He's over them, and he's against them. This is the focus of Luke 11, 14 through 28. The religious leaders, or the sum of them, I'm assuming them to be religious leaders, try to test Jesus. And they say that he's doing these things by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. Uh, The language here in the text is a weird word, Beelzebub. It's likely, the origin's unclear, but likely it's a play on Baal, uh, prophets of Baal, Baal worship in the Old Testament. means something like Lord of the Flies in description. It would just be kind of a catch-all category for demonic, for uh, Satan and his emissaries. So he said, you're doing it by the power of this demonic, satanic work. And then others um, don't accuse him of that, but they they ask for a sign from heaven to make it clear under whose power he's doing these things. Sign from heaven brings back uh, images from the Old Testament. Think specifically there about Moses and Elijah. Hey, how do we know, uh, think about Elijah's interaction with the prophets of Baal, how do we know the one true and living God will demonstrate that in a sign from heaven? 
Interestingly here, the language uh, finger of God, I do these things by the finger of God, is a direct uh, phrase from Exodus 8, where if you remember, uh, Moses is interacting with Pharaoh's magicians, and they're saying, what are you doing? What, how are we getting that? How is this happening? And God demonstrates his power over the false arts of Pharaoh and his magicians by allowing Moses to do things that only God can do by the finger of God. So now, and interestingly enough, we've just had the transfiguration story where people are saying, you must be Moses, you must be Elijah. We have this continuation where Jesus says, no, I'm greater. I'm doing this by the finger of God in promoting these acts of healing. I'll be honest. Uh, If I'm Jesus at this point, and the boys are asking for a sign from heaven, I'm a bit like, dude, I mean, didn't you see, like, there was a demon, and that guy, right? Uh, But this is what we, we have, opposition pressing Jesus to either demonstrate by what power or give themselves something else to validate who he is. And then Jesus gives these two cryptic illustrations that are both making the point that he's against the demons. He's against Satan. The first of those is the end of verse 17 and verse 18. A kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. A house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will the kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Again, the Old Testament's a really good place to look for this point. The nation of Israel, if you remember following Solomon's reign, we have the fracturing of the nation. And it was almost a foregone conclusion after Solomon that once the nation fractures, exile is imminent. Things that are broken can't stay together for long. Destruction is coming. If an army is divided and not working together to accomplish the objective, it's going to get crushed. If the young white boys and the young black boys on Remember the Titans can't learn to come together as a team, they're not going to achieve the victory. If they're broken and fractured, you can't accomplish the directive. So Jesus says, why would I cast out a demon if I'm playing on Satan's team? It doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't I want more demons? Uh, And if I was on the opposite team, then why would I be fighting for good? for pure, for wholeness, for putting things back together again. Satan doesn't try to defeat his own forces. Only God does, because God is against the demons. And then he moves on to the second point. Before he moves on to the second point, he gets a little dig in in verse 19. He says, kind of, oh, and by the way, your boys are trying to do this too. So if you accuse me of doing it in the power of Satan, who are your boys playing for, Right? So let's get straight what's happening here. And then uh, illustration B is this picture of a strong man. Verse 21. Strong man fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when a stronger, uh, one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So we turn our attention to a little strongman competition on ESPN3. Satan is pictured as the strongman, the one who has the mute dude under his control, under his authority. He guards the man, thinking it's secure, and then a stronger man comes along. 
is like Brandon's in the gym trying to flex on his birthday under the bar and everybody's oohing and aahing about Brandon's great strength and then Matt saunters into the gym, right? <laughs> Throws a few more plates on the bar. It is clear who the stronger man is in this moment. Jesus is pictured as the stronger man who can rightfully take back what is his, seemingly with almost no work or effort. He's clearly the stronger man. So when he shows up, the, the, the hierarchy is clearly established. He's the one with the greater strength. Which then, uh, so Jesus says in verse 23, hey, you probably want to be on team stronger man. You probably want to be for me and not against me. You probably want to be gathering with me and not scattering. Don't get enamored by the strong man because when strongest man shows up, you want to be on his side. This then leaves us, though, in a weird place before we consider the last couple of paragraphs here. Done a decent job, I hope, at considering what the passage says. Uh, but it can be difficult, even in a place like this, to consider why it matters. Like, I mean, certainly the why it matters to, to Jesus' followers, to those that were around, that's pretty clear. I mean, you're interacting here with this mute man, and Jesus is making it clear, hey, you want to be on my side, you want to follow me, because I've got power over the demonic, power over Satan. But like, why does it matter for us? What's the street cred of a passage like this? Especially if you, like me, might be tempted uh, to neglect the thought of Satan, demons, this unseen realm of the spirit much of the time. Why does this passage matter? Let me give you three reasons I think this text should matter for you. First, uh, this passage should matter for you because you need to grow in living with an awareness that everything is spiritual. You and I need to grow in an awareness that everything that is happening in our purview is, is spiritual. Look back at verse 20. This is one of the summary statements that's kind of hidden in there. I mentioned this earlier with a connection to Exodus 8. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has, has come upon you. Jesus is using this episode, and Luke is highlighting this episode for us, to show those that are around that God is active and at work in the world. He wants people, he wants those around to see that there are forces at play that that we don't give enough attention to. His rule and reign uh, was coming to earth, did come to earth, in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember this description, even at the outset of Jesus' earthly ministry, the kingdom of God has come near with Jesus' birth. More specifically here, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's over you. It's demonstrating power over this other realm where demons and Satan run amok. Think back to Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus shows that the whole point of all this is to make it clear to the world that in Jesus the kingdom has come, 
They don't need to look for more signs from heaven because Jesus is all the sign that, that they need. He is God, and his, in his coming, the kingdom of God has come, and in his presence, the spiritual forces that are at work leading people astray are, are overpowered. If you're like me, it's really easy to lose sight of this. Think... Um, Daniel and the lion's den, some of the Old Testament stories, where kind of the veil gets lifted, and they're able to see, you know, this fourth person that was there all along. They're able to see that there are chariots and armies that are fighting on their side that were out of sight, out of mind. I think it's important for us to remember that whatever we're facing is in large measure attributable to realities that we can't quantify, that we can't tangibly get our hands around. There are forces at work in the world leading astray, promoting brokenness, bringing about destruction, and there's the ever-present power of God at work in and through his son, Jesus Christ, to right the effects of that brokenness. And frankly, friends, it's important for you to see that that power rests in Jesus and not in your ability to mechanize a fix for your problems. There's something bigger going on. Interestingly, though, the Bible, outside of the Gospels, doesn't make a whole lot of the whole demon thing. Outside of the Gospels, there's actually very little mention of demons in the scriptures. We see in Paul's writing discussion of principalities and forces. Uh, We see it described as philosophies even that are leading people astray. But the gospels are where we get this front and center. It seems that Jesus' presence on earth brought this to the surface in a way that we could see around that's typically off-camera and that could validate Jesus' ministry in a very unique and specific way. Going to be some things happening, and I would argue that that continues to the book of Acts as we see the church spreading out, and then many of those realities shift off camera again. They're used to validate Jesus' ministry, they're used to validate the spread of the church, and the focus shifts from them, but that doesn't mean that those forces are not still at work, that those powers are still not in play. Christians, though, aren't given instructions on the mechanisms of casting out demons. We certainly don't see things in the New Testament like power encounters, naming demons, or 12 steps to exorcisms. What we get when we consider this realm are passages like this from Ephesians 6. Where Paul writes, finally be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having been prepared with everything to take your stand, stand therefore, 
with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extend the flame, ex- extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Notice Paul's really clear that there is a world at work that you can't see. But he also is super clear on his advice or instructions. What does he give? He provides for us what would be seen as basic fundamental principles for Christian discipleship. Truth, righteousness, readiness to speak the gospel, faith, the word of God, and prayer. These, and not some mystical world, are the means by which we battle with the unseen realm that we cannot see. And, and I think this is a really important point, the degree to which you engage in those practices says a whole lot about what you believe to be the most important realities in the world around you. Say it differently, to neglect prayer, to neglect the word of God, means that you actually believe that you are better at fixing your problems than God is. Secondly, consider the state of your soul. Consider the state of your soul. Verse 24 to 26. Unclean spirit comes out of a person. It roams through waterless places looking for rest, not finding rest, then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds its house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first. Kind of weird, right? I mean, there's a lot of description there that doesn't seem to make sense. You can find some real cool commentaries that'll do a deep dive. That might be your Sunday afternoon read here. But I think what Jesus is doing is just making a pretty, pretty simple point. Again, he's trying to drive out the reality that the focus here isn't on what I just did to that demon. It's not that I kicked the demon out. That all sorts of things can happen once the the demon's gone. You sweep the house, you can put it in order. But if the soul doesn't find rest, or maybe better said, doesn't take on a new occupant, there's not a new resident that's dwelling there. The implications of the demon being exercised are going to be short-lived. In fact, if you don't invite a new tenant, God, to dwell there, the latter state might be way worse than what you were experiencing the first. I think the parallel illustration for us, if you've hung around the church for any length of time or had spiritual conversations, you've, you've seen this reality play out. Somebody's living in open rebellion from God, and then something happens that gets their attention. They hit bottom, they get busted, and they attempt to get things in order. As a pastor, I hear that probably week in and week out, you know, trying to get my life together. They attend a Bible study, they break up with some bad friends, they might even come to church for a while. But it soon becomes clear that all of this was sweeping and dusting a mildewed, rot-infested heart. They'd not invited a new resident to take up 
dwelling in their, their heart. They were merely concerned with behavior modification. They haven't submitted to God. They're just trying to put their house in order. And in time, what often happens is exactly what Jesus pictures here. They return back to the former way of life, and it's way worse. Because after all, they've, they've already been through that religious phase in the past. I think this, the difficult warning passages in the book of Hebrews are pointing to this reality. People that get close, that taste of the goodness of Christian fellowship, the beauty of blessedness through the Spirit, and then rebel. The writer of Hebrews says they're impossible to restore again to repentance. There's a searing of their conscience, a hardness. So friends, I think it's right for us uh, to, to ask, hey, what is the state of your soul before God? Are you following him? Is he resident in your heart? Or are you merely going through the religious motions? And then lastly, why does this passage, uh, why does this passage matter? Because we need to be the kind of people that believe that Jesus is better. We sing this regularly around here. We need to be the kind of people who believe that Jesus is better. Verse 27 and 28. He was saying these things. A woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. And he said, Now rather blessedness is those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is a recurring theme. This is kind of the regular beat through the Gospels. Blessed people are those who hear my word and keep it. Jesus ends, and I wish our whole text had been these two verses, because this is the clearest place in the entire passage that we've been considering. Blessed people are the ones who obey me. Interestingly, I think, bookend, they listen to my word like the demon did. Right? They, they do what I say. They, they recognize that I have power and authority over them. They hear my word and they keep it. These are the people that are truly blessed, even more than the one that brought Jesus into the world. And like verse 23 before, he presents to us these two alternatives. A house that swept clean, but returned to follow Ephesians 2, prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Or those who hear my words and keep it. Or those who are for me, those who are gathering with me and not scattering. To follow Jesus, live, option, to set oneself up for destruction, other option. And he makes the point here to not consciously choose to follow after Jesus is to choose to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So if Jesus is who he says he is, C.S. Lewis, liar, lunatic, Lord illustration here. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he has authority over you to tell you how you should live. And your proper response is to bend to that authority. And interestingly, the table this morning gives us a great compare and contrast to those realities, doesn't it? When we receive these elements, you know, it feels like some plates are being passed and a little bit distracting, but when we receive these elements, we're saying, I have consciously chosen to align myself with the strongest man. I've consciously chosen to place myself under the authority of the one who has the power over Satan and the demons. I've consciously submitted my life there. 
And where's the place for these elements to have weight, right? They're, they're kind of insignificant, little wafer and some juice. But where, where should they kind of be heavy in your hand? They should be heavy in your hand as you consider, is my hope in this reality that's symbolized in the, per, that's symbolizing the person and work of Jesus? Or, open hand, am I depending on my own strength? So as you receive it, like imagine you're receiving a 50-pound dumbbell this morning and it's sitting in your hands. It's got some press on you to say, am I trusting this power to do work that I can't see? And if that's not you, you're like, oh, man, house might be swept clean. I feel like I'm doing a good thing by showing up at church today, but I'm really not sure the state of my soul before God easy option for you. Pass on taking the elements. There's going to be some ministry leaders in our church that are in the back of the auditorium standing. We would love to pray with you, to talk with you, to hear just how we can help and serve you so that you can know Jesus Christ and follow him obediently. Know that your soul is right before God. So let's do, let's still ourselves for a moment. I'm going to voice a prayer as the band comes to the stage. And as we pray, our servers will begin to distribute the elements. We're going to all take them together. So if you receive it, just allow it to have some weight in your hands. Pray, confess sin, talk to God. Then in just a moment, I'll read the Lord's Supper text and we'll receive the elements together. Our Father, we thank you that even in the act of prayer, as we close our eyes in this moment, we are, we're confessing with our bodies that there's, there is a world at work that we can't see, that we can't manipulate or figure out even. That you are at work, that you are in control, and that you are over evil forces that seek to lead us astray that ensnare and entrap, that discourage our minds and our hearts, that fracture marriages, that lead to all sorts of brokenness. We confess as we receive these elements this morning, as we hold them in our hands, that you are more powerful than anything else in the world. We can trust that you are in control. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, Allow the words of this morning's sermon to have a good effect in our hearts as we pray, as we ponder the beauty of what you've done for us in and through Jesus.